Welcome to Conversations with the Best Minds in Real Estate, a podcast hosted by RCL Co. Real Estate Advisors, the show that brings you illuminating interviews with today's most relevant and motivating leaders throughout all corners of the real estate sector. Each episode will feature different masters in real estate, revealing challenging lessons they've learned, their secrets to success, and opinions regarding the state of the market. Hello, this is Gotti Kaufman, Managing Director and CEO of RCLCO. If you're listening to our podcast, then you know that since 1967, RCLCO has been the first call for real estate developers, investors, the public sector, and non-real estate companies and organizations seeking strategic and tactical advice regarding property investment, planning, and development. Welcome to the latest episode of Conversations with the Best Minds in Real Estate. Today, I'm talking with Tony Ruggieri and with Jake Wagner, the co-CEOs of Republic Property Group. Tony is responsible for defining the vision for each community or product RPG develops and oversees the operations, the marketing, technology, and community programming teams to ensure that the vision is translated into reality. Jake, his co-CEO, leads the strategic planning, development, legal, and construction departments, where he manages RPG's extensive home building programs with an active role in architectural style design, financing, and civic and government approvals. Together, Tony and Jake have extended Republic Property Group's portfolio beyond land and home development to include HOA and hospitality management, broadband services, and telehealth platform for North Texas residents. Both Tony and Jake have been named to 40 under 40 lists, Tony for the Dallas Business Journal, and Jake from ULI. Tony and Jake, thank you so much for taking the time to be a part of our podcast series. Of course, we're happy to be here. Thank you, Gotti. You bet. Well, when we when I first heard of both of you, it was when Todd LaRue, my partner and your friend based in Austin, Texas, said, you know, we always are searching for young talent and up-and-coming stars. He says, these are two guys you really should be uh, paying attention to and we should be tracking. And that was back in 2008, I think it was, when the two of you were uh, relatively new to Republic and at the beginning of what became a phenomenal journey. And over the years, I've admired what you have accomplished uh, and the evolution of your firm, your communities, and your impact, not just on your residence and your business, but also uh, in Texas and beyond. I think the master plan community world is lucky to have the two of you uh, among its rising stars, young leaders. And uh, I believe that today's conversation will help us get some more insights into both who you are and what you're doing and how you're going to be changing our built environment in master plan communities and perhaps beyond. So before we get started, Tony and Jake, I would appreciate it if you would give us a little bit of a brief description of your professional work history. And Tony, why don't we start with you? Sure. So I graduated from Boston College in 2004, and I was born and raised in Dallas. And so I came back here to be by family and joined up with C.B. Richard Ellis and I was an intern in the investment properties division during the summer 
and then I got into retail leasing and tenant rep uh, brokerage for CB and did that for about a year and a half and realized as an introvert, maybe brokerage wasn't the field for me and also really wanted to get into the development side because I wanted to see a tangible product at the end of the day for my efforts and I felt that was better aligned with what I was doing. And so my longtime friend since seventh grade, Jake Wagner, who I went to St. Mark's with, um, he and I were at dinner one night and I was talking about how I wanted to get more into development. And he said, you know, you really should go talk to Rick Strauss. We had, Republic Property Group had Lantana at the time. And um, Rick was trying to figure out what to do with the company when Lantana finished up and trying to decide whether he wanted to bring in some young guys and, and keep the process going or whether he wanted to sort of wrap it up after Lantana. And so I went in and talked to him and fell in love with the company and joined up. And that was back in 2005. Terrific. Well, I'm sure since then you accomplished a lot. But who who's Rick Strauss and what was Republic Property Group before you guys joined? I know they developed Lantana. What else have they done? This is Jake. Rick Strauss is the, the chairman of Republic Property Group. He founded the company in 1967 really developed all facets of real estate throughout his career, probably starting in the mid to late 80s, focusing solely on community development, smaller and larger scale. Uh, and that evolved over time. And, and Lantana was a 1,700-acre master plan community uh, located just north of DFW Airport here in North Texas uh, that he started in 2001. And when Tony and I joined uh, the company, that was uh, a few years in, uh, but it was a much a much smaller platform, a much smaller company. And that was uh, really the only project that the company was focused on at that time. Okay, great, great, great background. Thank you, Jake. Uh, so, Jake, why don't you give us a quick rundown uh, on your professional work history leading to your joining uh, Republic uh, Property Group? Sure. So, I, I graduated uh, high school. I went to University of Texas down in Austin for college. I was an English major, which is not a logical background step to becoming a real estate developer. Uh, my exposure to real estate did start in college. Where I interned for Trammell Crow Residential on the multifamily side in Austin. I subsequently graduated, moved back to Dallas, and got into brokerage. Uh, this was 2004 uh, at a very hot time in the market, so I'm sure there were lots of people graduating those days getting back into some sort of real estate. Uh, brokerage being a good foundational place for me, and it was really starting on the land side, which was really incredible to be able to learn the market and learn valuation, network, meet meet lots of different people. I was doing that for a small private company here called Landmark Interests. Did that for a couple years before coming over to Republic Property Group about eight months after Tony had joined and and that was really a desire to see more of the development side. I actually really enjoyed brokerage. I, I learned a lot. It was a good time to be a broker, but felt like I was somewhat plateauing in my learning curve. And at that point being 24, 25 years old, I was just trying to learn as, as much as I possibly could and continue to grow and really saw that opportunity 
over here um, under our, our chairman, Rick Strauss at the time, who was at a, a point in his life where he was starting to think about transition and where the company was going to go. And he was an incredible mentor to Tony and I both for you know eight plus years. So you're both obviously best buddies in high school. You separated when you went to college, kind of reunited once you got back to Dallas. But did you know when you were in high school that you were going to be in real estate one way or the other? Did you know you're going to work together one way or the other? This is Jake. I do not think so. That was not in cards at that early age. I think in middle school when we met in high school, I don't know that we were thinking that far ahead, but it's been a uh, it's an incredible long relationship and it's been fortunate for us to end up where we are today because when you look at the the co-CEO structure which is unique or any business partner for that matter it is really important to have a level of trust and alignment and be able to talk openly and put egos aside and work together and because we have such a long history and we've known each other for so long that that part is really easy you both decided to go into leasing and brokerage and uh, I'm curious if you had spent any time as you were making your choices coming out of college and collaborating on that and sort of convincing one another this is a great idea or a lousy idea. We really didn't. We both sort of fell back into Dallas and into real estate, Tony and the retail commercial side and me on the land side, I'd say by coincidence, but at that point with the background and the friendship and being like-minded and wanting to learn, we, we were able to really learn together somewhat in, in different industries and compare notes and share things that we were learning over that period of time. And I think my, at least my interest in real estate really started around that time. My, my father had always been in real estate, so I was exposed to it a little bit, but I definitely had not had a planned intention that that was going to be my career until after college and partly being in college and, and studying English and liberal arts. I didn't know what I wanted to do at that point. And so I I just took classes and things that I was really, really interested in and enjoyed. And I think that really helped a lot of the entrepreneurial skills and abilities over that period of time. Real estate's incredibly entrepreneurial and, and creative. And I think I gained a very broad background more on the world than the, the industry specific before then. So at some point, and Tony, why don't we kind of have you start on this, but at some point you both separately decided that like real estate, like Texas, like Dallas, but you really wanted to focus on development, land development, residential land development. How did that happen? Tony, what drew you to land development and to uh, uh, the business of real estate development? I mean, thinking back, it's kind of easy to stitch a story together, um, knowing where I've ended up. And I, and I do think it's a really good fit for my personality. I've always been a builder. My entire life, I was always tinkering with things and building things out of wood and electronics and wanting to just create things from scratch. And as I got older, my aspirations to do that on a larger scale grew. When I was in real estate, and, and honestly, the reason I got in real estate was because in Dallas in 2004, Quite frankly, most people graduating college were going into real estate and CBRE was and maybe still is the largest real estate brokerage firm in the world. So I figured that was probably a good place to start. But when I got over there, I started to realize that I could connect the dots and I could take my joy of building things and my appreciation for real estate and, and do both at the same time. 
uh, by going into real estate development. And I think that's really where I came from. Excellent. Now you both have been in it for 13, 14 years, and uh, you've had the displeasure of living through one of the greatest uh, economic downturns in housing market negative cycles to impact our country and our economy. What do you think changed between before and after the Great Recession when it comes to community development? We learned an incredible amount in the Great Recession, although we were very young in our careers. We saw it from a different perspective probably than many people did. Uh, And if you rewind back to where our company was during that time, uh, we had one project, which was Lantana, but it was a, a very solid project. It was, you know, impacted slightly by the Great Recession, but not dramatically. And so we were able to spend that time being more opportunistic and, and growing rather than having to work through a, a number of, of issues like unfortunately so many people did. So I think it was a it was a different perspective and especially being young in our careers from that standpoint. But I think the conservative nature and the pragmatic approach our company and the chairman had taken prior to that for us to be in that position. And those fundamentals still apply to the way we operate today. And I think we are still very, very focused. And while that that recession, especially here in North Texas, it was seemingly, you know, starting around 10 years ago, and we've had a great recovery since then. It is still very, very fresh in our minds and and what we learned at that point. So I think while we are innovating and doing things very differently and and a lot of that approach for the industry is, is a result of changing buyers and demands and technology and expectations, I think the conservative aspects uh, that led us into that recession are still fresh in our minds and how we operate today. You know, for Jake and I, we had been hearing pre-recession, we were reminded constantly we weren't around during the RTC days and we didn't know what it was like. And in this weird, twisted way, we were kind of like, finally, we can stop hearing about this all the time because now we've been went through one. But the reality is, I don't think a whole lot changed pre and post recession in the Dallas market, master plan community development, I think what really evolved the industry is the changes in demographics that are occurring and the different desires of the home buyers. I think that's had more of an impact than the recession did. So talk more about that, Tony. What is it that, what are the demographic changes that you are observing and how are they influencing decisions you're making in your communities? So I, I think the generation that's coming into the home buying age now came of age while there was a lot of turmoil in the corporate world. And I think it kind of soured a lot of people on big business. And I think people started prioritizing different things and focusing on wanting more out of a job than just the paycheck. They weren't sure if they could trust the company they were working for. And I don't know if that directly led to the feelings that we need to prioritize experiences or not, but I I definitely noticed that there's a lot more focus today on uh, shared experiences and people want to do things together. So I think the more maybe isolated activities like golf are giving way to food and beverage and different styles of events, farmers markets, things where people can come together and gather and get to know each other. And 
the really cool thing is that I think that's universally appealing. I don't think it's necessarily just the younger generation. I think the boomers really like that as well. And so it's provide an opportunity for us to create communities that appeal to everybody. And Jake, when you think about those those demographic changes and maybe consumer attitude changes, how evident is it to you and how does it become as a strategic mind for the company, how does how do you translate these ideas, these observations into business practices that are helping make more money? I think Tony and I, by nature of our age and being on the front end of the millennial generation, it can sometimes be easier for us to think about what people want and what desires and expectations are because we can somewhat just ask ourselves what we would want. So some of the things we do aren't necessarily predicated on lots of extensive market research and an approach we would take in lots of other areas, but it is more of what what would we like to see and what would we want? And I think that's a probably a unique perspective for a, a developer just because of our age. But that being said, you know, like like Tony said, a lot of those desires expectations are really universal. And when you look at the millennials and it's 80 million Americans of varying ages, you can't really generalize because it's such a vast group of people. And so those those wants and expectations still are diversified somewhat. I think that's a great observation. And, and I would just chime in to say that during my career, I've been involved with the real estate and the community development business for 40 years almost. And during that period, I have observed that some of the greatest uh, developers, some of the best developers of communities and resorts in America have very much used their intuition, driven very much by their own personal experiences to design and implement projects and amenity programs, marketing campaigns, product evolution, and really try to build a place that they, their friends, and their families are going to want to be in, want to live in. It's a double-edged sword. On the one hand, it obviously could be very successful and has been very successful. On the other hand, it could also end up driving a developer to design a community or design a a product that is uh, so specific to their needs and aspirations that maybe it misses the market. Clearly, some of those people like Harry Frampton and East West Partners and Peter Rummel and the Disney and then St. Joe have done very well in coming up with those concepts and implementing them to only prove that they are widely successful and greatly uh, very attractive. You, I think, are also a good example of a new incarnation of uh, that philosophy and successfully implementing that. So how do you make sure that you don't just design for yourselves? How do you make sure that what you do design, what you do implement, what you do roll out is something that does have broad appeal in commercial success? Well, you guys did a study for us for our Walsh project. I think that was extremely helpful to go out to the market and to get an understanding of what other people are looking for in the market. And it was in a way a validation of what we were hoping we would find. And I think that's a really healthy step in ensuring that you're not going off and developing something that's incredibly niche and nobody is able to enjoy it except for you and your family. So that's a really that's a really important part, I think. Some of it though is just, you know, you gotta take a risk every once in a while and and go out and 
try something that's never been done before and trust your gut that it's going to work. Uh, we spent a lot of time talking to our residents in our communities as well. And that's something that surprisingly, I don't think happens a whole lot at the CEO level, but we're out having coffees with the residents and meeting them and and asking them questions. And we can learn a lot just by talking to our residents in our current communities about what is missing in the market and where we can fill a void. I totally agree with that. And I think there's a, a balance as well, because this approach still is all done in a very conservative way. There are gut instincts and learning over time through experience to trust your gut and to execute and be willing to try new things. There's certainly already a very large amount of risk in so many different ways in the development business. So trying new things or innovation can add to that risk, but it's not misconstrued as trying things without a whole lot of thought and effort that goes into it. I think the same conservative approach we would take in any aspect of our business, uh, we approach that the same way when we're trying something new or doing something that hasn't been done before. Well, I, I like what you're describing as the way to help yourselves from yourselves in not getting too deep into your own heads and, and falling off the right path by first and foremost checking with your customers and the residents in your communities to make sure that what you're thinking about is relevant to them and to listen to what they observe, good, bad, or indifferent about your project. So I think that consumer feedback is a very healthy part of the process. And also making sure that you don't just talk to yourselves and to your consumers by opening up to uh, outside players. I know you spend a lot of time traveling the country and meeting with other practitioners to share best practices, to share your experiences, and to learn from theirs. I think that clearly is a very important element to your success. What would you add to that that allows you to make sure you don't make mistakes? We try to experiment in silos. I'll give you an example. In Light Farms, we just opened our restaurant and market, and we decided that the community needed another amenity, and we wanted something that would bring people together. And food and community are two things that are very linked throughout history. And it's something that we were missing in Light Farms. So the way we approached it was we're going to spend this amount of money on a new amenity. We can either build a pool, which we already have one of those. So I think our incremental benefit of adding another pool is questionable. And we're going to fund that, or the HOA is going to fund that through the residence HOA dues forever with no potential of any kind of offsetting revenue stream. Or we could build a restaurant. We could have a new type of amenity. We can set it up in such a way that our goal is, you know, to have a successful restaurant that benefits the community, it has a potential of making money in the future. But if it breaks even forever, we're still ahead of where we would be if we were just operating another pool complex. Worst case scenario, it becomes a building for the residents to convert it to a different type of amenity. So minimizing your downside by siloing the experiments in such a way that you have an exit, I think is an important part too. That kind of bleeds into another area that I would love to chat with you about. One of the major issues for new community development in America is the rising cost of uh, getting to the point where you can, quote unquote, flush the first toilet, right? Where you have enough of the infrastructure and the amenities in place to make it a compelling experience to residents that they will want to buy a home and move into it. And then the second challenge is getting to the point where enough of those homes have been sold that 
the upfront investment begins to get monetized or at least you get a decent return on that investment. One of what you described a moment ago with the idea of not building one more pool, but rather doing something that is potentially commercially more viable is is a way to help defray uh, or at least maybe uh, fund some of these amenities. Are there other things that you think that community developers, yourselves included, uh, should consider doing to scale down the amenities that are non-revenue generating, that are just simply a benefit for which you pay to develop and residents pay to maintain, and delivering more amenities or more features in the community that are less expensive to build and or that have, as you called it, revenue streams to offset the investment in them? I think there's lots of opportunities in that line, and we, we talk a lot about that. H- historically, we put in a lot of our amenities at the very beginning of a project, which obviously is more capital intensive, and that funnels through a business plan and what your overall structure is and who your partners are and how that works. But we've always felt that, and especially coming out of the recession, that if you're asking someone to probably make the biggest financial investment of their life in buying a home, making the financial investment on our side to create the value and give them that comfort that they're making a good decision is really important. We plan for amenities throughout the life of the project in the future. Uh, We don't necessarily plan exactly what those will be other than setting aside dollars for them because we like to understand how the market's going to change and how the culture in our communities are going to evolve. And in talking to our residents, what types of desires and interests and passions are they going to have and what types of amenities would suit them? And you can't necessarily take an amenity that will work in one project and you know, just stamp it out or copy it in others because different projects have different brands and different markets and they all have their subtle nuance to where they're all different. So in Light Farms, for example, when we started that project, we didn't plan for a restaurant as an amenity, but we saw the opportunity over time for all the reasons Tony talked about that that would be a great use of funds and it would tap into people's desires to have the importance of food and meet and and join together. I think so much of amenities today, there's tremendous opportunities for amenities that can generate revenue, similar to the restaurant. There's also tremendous opportunities for amenities that don't have to cost a lot of money, but that do add a lot of value. And whether those are smaller things like bocce ball and sand volleyball, or even more on the soft programming side of the events and the lifestyle and the activities that bring people together and even working with residents to get them engaged to help with some of those efforts. There's so many things that we can do as developers that cost little to no money that improve the experience and activate the place. And then there's so many other opportunities that can actually generate revenue beyond older models where you you build an info center and you build a pool and it's a huge capex on the front that doesn't have any repayment over time. I would also add that a fantastic personality, either ideally a resident in the community or someone that you bring in from the outside, can be worth the same as a million-dollar building. So you could have just a patch of land that currently isn't being used for anything. It's just a passive open space. But if you get the right kind of character out there doing a 
boot camp that becomes well known in the region, you can activate it in a way and you didn't even have to build anything. And in Light Farms, I'll tell you the sort of the evolution into the food and beverage space was first we had a beekeeper move out there because he realized that local organic honey uh, would inoculate his granddaughter against the allergies she was struggling with. And then we had a holistic nutritionist move in and she was really interested in healthy living. And the two of them got together and we said, why don't you guys set up a health and wellness committee run by residents? And so they did that. And then they partnered up with a farmer in Denton and we started a CSA program in the community. And so now we had a community supported agriculture drop of organic produce in the community. That turned into a partnership with three or four organic producers. We started a farmer's market and Rod Boyd, the beekeeper that's out there with his booth, which is now one of 50 booths in that farmer's market, is as much a part of building the sense of place at Light Farms as any of our amenities are. It doesn't always have to be a building. That's a fantastic story and I think it's an inspiration for what can happen. But it wouldn't have happened had you not known about these folks and provided them the platform or even inspired them to actually do something beyond just serving their own needs or pursuing their own passions. What does it take to do that? Not being afraid of visiting with your residents and setting aside time to talk to them and make them feel safe and no questions are off limits because we believe if we get up every day and we're doing the right thing and we're focused on the best interest of the residents, then they can ask us any questions and we can share openly what we're working on and we can have a really strong relationship. And that's when people start to share and you end up inside conversations and you learn something about them. And we just try to encourage those types of personalities to blossom in our communities. It's a fantastic example of... uh very high impact at very low cost just because you care and you uh, identify just through communications with your own consumers and customers and residents, identify great opportunities and just unleash them. Uh, the human mind and the human uh, ability are always remarkable and all we need to do is identify the green shoots of those nuggets and let them and, and, and facilitate their, their evolution. Then they'll just take a life of their own. Very well done. So I have a question. When you think about a new community, one of the topics that is often a debate is how much should we set aside for the amenities? Uh, and, And you have said before that when you approach a new community, you may not know what exactly amenities are going to be developed and when, but you do know you're going to want to develop amenities over time and uh, you just set money aside. So what is the algorithm or what is the formula that you use to determine at the early stages in the pre-planning, what is going to be your amenity, your budget for amenities and for programming? I don't think we have one. I'm sure there is there is an algorithm and there's a way to be more scientific about it. But as far as number of people per pool or those different things, we don't really look at it that way because every project's different in size and scale. Some projects may need to be more highly amenitized than others pending you know, the competition and the market and those constraints. We always build the highest quality we possibly can up front and we always set aside dollars in the future to have flexibility along the way, especially in a longer term project where the world changes dramatically so quickly. And we always look at being able to to reclass 
different buckets in a business plan and look at things different ways to free up dollars if we really believe in to do something the right way and that it's really important and it's going to add value then we find a way to do it and that's partly with amenities or a a restaurant or those different things you always know it's going to be a good amenity it's going to add value fundamentally to the real estate a restaurant should increase the value of the community of the homes be a buying decision for many people you can't always equate that to a revenue line item on the back end but that's okay sometimes and if you know it's going to be there and in your gut so we don't look at it as scientifically as that because there's just so many different variables i think we also try to get scrappy with it you know looking at things that have potential revenue opportunities is a hack to that whole amenity cost model and i think it delivers more genuine product for the homeowners that live there For example, in Walsh, we have a very large employer, Lockheed Martin, that's not too far away from us. And we thought on the front end, they'll probably be a large employer for the residents in the community. Turns out for the first year so far, they are the largest employer for residents in the community. And so we thought a makerspace, woodworking and robotics would be interesting for engineers. And we didn't have the budget to just build that and fund it forever. But those kinds of uses have an opportunity to have a revenue stream. So there are sponsorship dollar opportunities there. We have that open to the public. And so there's also membership fees if you don't live in the community and you can join as well. And there's creative ways to offset the cost of the amenities. And I also say you just have to react. I think Jake mentioned this. You have to react to the market and where you are. And I know in the hotel industry, they look at their cost of amenities per key. And if they're out set away from everything, that's probably going to be a higher number than if they're downtown because they can take advantage of what's around them. So if you have a community and it's next to a really amazing gym, probably don't need a big gym because everyone's going to want to join that gym anyway. So maybe it's better to look at a partnership with that fitness center than building your own HOA weight room. Really good stuff. I know we can talk a lot about uh, the community, building communities and all that, but I want to switch a little bit about you two uh, as as individuals. You are unique in your setup company-wise as co-CEOs. It's not something you see very often. So tell us a bit about why have you chosen or were designated to be co-CEOs and how's that working? So we decided this would be a true 50-50 partnership when Jake came on back in 2006. And Rick and John did a really good job of keeping us aligned as we went along and grew throughout the company. Being co-CEOs, if you're married, you know exactly what it's like because that is a co-CEO partnership. Because we always get questions of, well, you know, someone has to be the ultimate decision maker. How does that work? And it's kind of the same way it works in your marriage. One spouse is better at some things and the other spouse is better at others. And you kind of divide the roles of the marriage accordingly. And when there's a really complicated decision to be made, you just talk until you come to a conclusion. And if you don't come to a conclusion, you keep talking until you do. I I think it also is having alignment at the top is is absolutely critical. So if Tony and I didn't have the same exact purpose and beliefs in what we want to accomplish and what we want to do and what's important to us, both personally and professionally, that would probably be more challenging. But we have that complete alignment and the history is really critical. And and then on top of that, I think we both have different strengths and weaknesses. 
and different interests and passions when you get below the alignment into the details. So we complement each other really, really well. And often we can arrive at the best decision that's a, a hybrid version of where we both start from, you know, through collaborating and talking through different things. So on a day-to-day basis, do you two work side by side or do you kind of each do your own thing and come together for certain reasons and certain times? We definitely talk every single day and try to find at least an hour in the day where we can get together. If there are really important decisions or really important meetings, we'll go to them together. But most of the day, we divide and conquer because we do have different focuses in the company. We need to take advantage of the fact that there's two of us. I mean, that should be a competitive advantage because there's two people at the top. We can do two things at once, and and we want to be sensitive to that. And the constant communication, whether it's finding time, you know, once a day to have coffee or sit down and talk or even just quick updates over the phone or attending meetings together when we need to. It's really a hybrid of all of those. I think because of the alignment, because of the history, because we know each other so well, uh, we could almost predict what the other one's going to say or how the other one's going to handle something or we'll seek guidance from one another when we feel like we may need clarity or may need to talk through those things, but have absolute trust that even when we're dividing and conquering, we're making the same decisions based on our strategy and, and plan and goals. Do you think if your subordinates, team members were sitting in on this call, that they would say that you tend to, from time to time, trample over each other's territory or leave wide gaps and things fall between the cracks? Or is it really as seamless as you make it sound? It's certainly not 100% seamless. I think those are those can be challenges. If we don't have alignment or if we disagree, then you lose the benefit of having two people in that capacity. The negative to that could be that it could slow things down. It could create questions. It's something Tony and I are, are hypersensitive to, and we focus a lot on, and even in areas where we may have different opinions or we may disagree and we'll talk through that together and, and land on where we want. And at the end of the day, wherever we land, we are both 100% on board and supportive of that decision regardless and focus on bringing each other into account if somebody has a question and it is more of something I know Tony's going to weigh in, you know, I'm, I may tell him that we need Tony to weigh in and then we'll do that. But I think we've been able to make it as seamless as possible, but it is something we, we work on every day. It's a big priority and focus because that's what will create the efficiency and the benefit of having two people at the top. Well, Jake, thank you for sharing that. And since we're talking about uh, areas of vulnerability, uh, on, a, on an individual basis, what vulnerabilities do you have and how do you manage or compensate for them? We'll start with you, Tony, and then we'll go to you, Jake. So I think my weak spot is I really have a hard time if I feel like we can do something better, we can improve upon something. I have a hard time stopping that iterative process. And I notice it's the same thing with our creative partners and our creative team over here is there's just this propensity to just never stop tweaking and you just want to keep making it more and more perfect. But at some point you've got to have a ship date and you've got to cut it off and say, it's good enough. Let's go with it. And 
that's probably where I run into the most trouble here is just never wanting to release it and get it out the door because I want to keep working on it a little bit more. I think we balance each other out very, very well and complement each other's strengths and weaknesses. So it's another benefit of the partnership is any of the vulnerabilities we each have, the other one complements sort of whatever that is. And yeah, I see Tony as a lot of the creative engine and a lot of the, the new things we are doing. He is always pushing to do more, to try new things, to go faster, which is a great benefit. And I think on my side, I'm much more of the conservative, methodical approach, not necessarily from a a numbers analytical standpoint, but I tend to explore every single angle and then want to re-explore every single angle before potentially diving into something. So I think without Tony, we would probably move a lot slower than we are and we, and we probably wouldn't have as much of the innovation that we do, which is becoming a very important part of our company and the project's we create. And so I think we balance each other out very well there. It sounds like it because each one of those two forces, creative, high energy, risk-taking, methodical, analytical, thoughtful, and risk management are the two forces that typically you find a company having more of the one versus the other. This is a unique environment where the co-CEOs each possess the complementary skill set or the complementary traits that allow to manage risk. And I can attest just from my personal observations that the outcomes are you do take risks and they are well-measured risks that pay off. And I'm sure there's some that have not paid off. So that might lead us to the next question. When you think about your career, what mistakes have you made that if you could have a do-over, you might do them differently, both career-wise and maybe even at a project or at the company level? So for me, it's definitely at the company level. I think the biggest mistake that I've made is not focusing enough attention on alignment within the organization and just wanting to move and knowing that a direction is the right direction and not taking the time to explain why and the thought process behind it and not taking enough time on the interview process to make sure that we have cultural alignment and we share the same vision, values, purpose on the front end because that's the stuff we can't teach people. We either have the same values and vision and purpose for why we come to work every day or we don't. The skill set piece we can teach. And that's been our big priority over the last couple of years is focusing on alignment within the organization. And we're starting to see that. And we're starting to see everyone rowing in the same direction. And it's absolutely incredible. That's terrific. To add to that or, or on my you know, mistakes, I, I think we... We clearly have made a lot of mistakes. We will continue to make mistakes. We try to minimize those as much as we can. And, you know, mistakes can be okay when they're small and you, you learn from them. And they also, you know, give you an ability to come out stronger. You can see an evolution through our communities and our projects over the last several years of things we learned and things we improved on from one to the other. And that's Probably part of Tony and I's challenge is if we drive around our projects, we tend to just point out all the mistakes we made and all the things we want to do better. I think specifically one mistake, I've got kind of a good story to illustrate it, but over time, you know, as we've grown in this experience and working under the chairman, we gradually take on 
more responsibility and we'd learn and then maybe we'd make a mistake and we'd lose some of that responsibility. And that was a, a push and pull for, for several years. And that evolved to a point before we acquired the company where we were essentially project managers over specific projects. So I was overseeing Lantana at that time. And I got a call from our chairman. This was about my first week as overseeing that project. And I get a call from our chairman at about five, 15 in, in the evening, he said, turn on channel eight. And I turn on channel eight and there's a news story on the local news about the Lantana golf course is on fire. Had no idea, didn't know about it, hadn't heard about it. And I was you know, supposedly supposed to be overseeing that project. So, you know, from that standpoint was building trust with the people you're managing, establishing relationships and alignment. I think in a a good company and a good culture, bad news tra should travel fast because you have that level of trust. But that was definitely a, a learning lesson for me when that had occurred and no one thought to give me a call and it showed up on the local news. So that, that was not a, I didn't sleep very well that night. I bet you didn't. And, and I know Tony also talked about the cultural alignment in the organization and kind of making that a major emphasis. And perhaps you guys can talk a bit more about how do you create that culture where bad news will travel faster than good news so that a situation can be managed before it becomes a crisis. We're in the middle of this, so I don't think we're experts on this yet. For us, the hiring process is the first thing that we overhauled because we were not evaluating cultural fit. And when I say cultural fit, I mean our purpose and our values as an organization. We weren't making sure that there was alignment there. And it's really hard. There's a lot of great values in this world, but we have our values and those are ours. And it doesn't mean the other values are not good values, but they're not ours. And if we have a group of people that don't share common values, I think you're always going to be pushing a rope trying to get that level of trust. And then I think once you have good people that have alignment, it's making them feel safe making them feel safe to be able to make mistakes. Mistakes of aggressiveness, of trying to take on more things or trying to do new things, I think are beautiful and totally acceptable. Mistakes of apathy, on the other hand, there's, we have less patience for over here. But once people feel safe in an organization and they're aligned, I think that trust level starts to form. So I totally get that. I'd like to go back to the beginning of the journey, which is your recruiting process. As you mentioned, you try to find out about cultural alignment and buying into the same values and principles. How do you do that in a out of a resume or out of an interview? How, how can you establish or at least get comfortable that candidate A is culturally aligned to the values and principles of the firm while candidate B is not? There's a short-term and a long-term answer to that, and we're only in the short-term. We haven't done the long-term part yet, but on the short-term is identify the people in your organization that you feel are aligned from a value standpoint and have them interview the person as well. And that's a really easy way, even if you can't articulate what your values are or what's unique. Generally, when you're meeting with someone, you can generally feel like if they're similar to you and aligned. And so where we used to just have the hiring manager interview someone, now they'll have like six interviews throughout the company with all of the people that do have alignment for whatever that is. I think that's a really good way to solve that in the short term. In the long term, I think it's identify your values, which is the process we're going through now, and your purpose as a company, and put it out for the world to see. And you'll naturally attract those types of people that are motivated by the same things that you are. You'll attract those applicants 
So you'll start doing some pre-filtering before you even meet with them. Jake, have you found the magic uh, formula or the magic screen or the tool that can do a decent job in helping you screen out people with misalignment to the culture? I think we, you know, we do use some screening and personality tests tools and different things, you know, from that standpoint, we're always refining, articulating the types of questions that we ask and, you know, the different ways that we would try to make those decisions. That's really one of the difficult parts of hiring and recruiting. If you're looking for a role, understanding whether somebody has the technical skills to fulfill that isn't very difficult. The cultural piece and the alignment is much more challenging sometimes because and it's more of a, a soft art. And I think that's something we are continually working on because having really, really good people and being aligned, you can accomplish so much more and you can improve efficiency and you can decrease any of that strain along the way. And at the end of the day, you know, we want to create impactful places and very engaging environments, but we want to have fun doing it. And we don't want to take ourselves too seriously because that's part of the career. We want to create impactful places, but if you're not having fun doing it, working with the people in your organization or, you know, even outside partners, then life's too short to do otherwise. So we're very focused on it. I don't know that we've, we've cracked that nut yet, but we're, we're very focused on it. God willing, we will be here in uh, 2030 and have a follow-up conversation to this one and perhaps others in between. But what do you hope will be the picture of RPG in 2030? Jeez. <laughs> That's a big question, Gotti. So maybe part of this answer is a little bit of a cop-out, which is the same approach we have with our communities is our communities are built, they're seeded by us, but they're built by the residents that live there. And so as we grow as an organization and we bring on people into this organization, I think it will influence the direction and, and what we become. And I think we will also be influenced by the buyers and the demographics. I think one thing that we know for sure is we don't want to conquer the world and we don't want to have a huge company doing thousands of developments all over. We do want to keep it small and intimate, and we want to focus on very few projects, but focus very deeply on those that we do have. And I think that will be the case in 2030. Tony and I decided very early on that we love the real estate industry. We love the creativity of it, the, the competitive aspects. We like being very hands-on and involved in everything we do, and we don't want to lose that. So that will limit us in the number of projects that we take on and, and what we do. And we, we limit those you know, today to areas where we feel like we can take on a project that we can add a lot of value, we can do it really well, we can create something that's very impactful. And at the end of the day, that should result and does result in higher values and, and a better product for everyone. I think one of the aspects of this industry that we love is if your goal is to go out and create the most engaging, impactful community imaginable and the very best experience for either the residents or the people that experience that project, 
that's not something that you can ever attain. No one's ever going to create the perfect place because you can always improve on it and you can always do a little bit better. And I think that keeps us very motivated and driven to always do better, to always look at what's in the future and what's coming you know, down the line and do the very, the very best we can. But I think it'll be some iteration of still being very small, very selective, being very protective of our, our time, what we're involved in and, and working on projects that are very exciting and where we can do something unique. It's like, it's like parenting. There's no such thing as perfect but we still get up every day and we try to do better than we did the day before. Well, that's very inspiring. That's a great spot to stop on. We uh, could keep on talking for a long time. You have depth of thought and uh, emotions and vision that uh, are very rare. And I can't tell you how inspired I am by this conversation. I'm sure our audience will have both uh, learned a lot, but also come to appreciate your contributions and your accomplishments. I think that the communities you build are unique among a lot of great communities in America, and your approach to it explains very much why they're so unique and why they're so successful. I think that the principle of planning and executing real estate in a customer-resident-focused and driven manner, being nimble and creative and being open to new thoughts and ideas and willingness to change courses to better meet the market and what they need is the hallmark of your success and your values-based approach to building the culture and having that culture drive your business practices, I am sure will be a critical component or element of your ongoing success. So I look forward to tracking RPG's evolution and development into the years. And I want to thank you both for being a part of the podcast. Uh, It's been an honor and a pleasure visiting with you today. I feel like we covered a lot of subjects and a lot of topics and your insights and uh, openness are absolutely inspiring. Thank you guys. Thank you, Gotti. We, we really enjoyed it and really appreciated you having us. And we're going to have to flip this and pick your brain at some time on the, the hiring and building culture because you have a lot more experience than we do at this point. So thank you so much. Uh, we really enjoyed it and hope the listeners enjoy as well. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Bye-bye. We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of Conversations with the Best Minds in Real Estate hosted by RCL Co. Real Estate Advisors. If you are interested in learning more about RCL Co., go to rclco.com and follow us on Twitter at RCL Co. Don't forget to subscribe to new episodes of the podcast and make sure to leave us a rating on iTunes. Thanks for tuning into the show.